in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is our friend, Bram Cohen, the founder and CEO of Chia and the creator of BitTorrent. Bram, nice to be with us today, Bram. Good to be here. So Bram, I uh, just want to kind of bring our audience into the fold real quick. Could you briefly describe kind of your upbringing in New York and a, and a few of the uh, moments that stick out to you the most? Um, uh, so I was born in Manhattan and uh, went to school there. Um, I was a programming prodigy when I was a kid. My dad taught me how to program when I was a little kid, which was actually... Um, I'm pretty old to have that happen. Like getting a personal computer was a big deal back then. Mm-hmm. Very, very few people knew how to program at all. And um, and then I was in math team at school. And uh, I did pretty well in math team. I was a math team at Stuyvesant High School. So I was like the second best math team person in my year in New York City. And uh, then I went briefly to college <laughs> and left <laughs> and then uh, started working at startups. Uh, I, I moved to San Francisco and uh, after a few years of that in the dot-com bust, I uh, started working on just my own project, uh, which became BitTorrent. Uh, did that for a long time, <laughs> exited that a few years ago, and went and started my new venture, which is a cryptocurrency company called Chia. I, I love that. And, and, you know, the number one thing I love the most is I want to know who was number one in that math class, if you were number two. Oh, uh, that was um, Edwin Lin. Uh, who's uh, who's a trader? He lives in New York City. He, he's actually um, Alfred Lin's younger brother. Alfred Lin is a partner at Sequoia, and Edwin's older brother. And Alfred actually taught uh, our math team class when, like, I was a freshman. He was three years ahead of us, I believe. Man, that's just a talented community of folks right there. Nice little talent pool out there in New York City. Um, a lot different from West Oregon. Are the, they're time. pulling out like the best students in the entire city here. Like this is you know, filtering out the people who are the very best at math team specifically. So. But interesting though. So so BitTorrent, uh, help, help our audience understand kind of what that is. I was looking at BitTorrent before this. It's a protocol file sharing network. Can I explain to our audience what, the, what BitTorrent is? Oh, gee, what a strange question. <laughs> Someday people are going to, have no idea who I am. Um, the uh, BitTorrent is a peer-to-peer file distribution protocol and client software for it. Uh, it's all open source. Uh, it was actually still is widely used to move big files around over the internet, including in no small part, a lot of pirated stuff. Uh, it was probably still is a huge fraction of all internet traffic that's out there. Uh, its usage has gone down primarily because um, uh, purveyors of content have decided to actually make it possible to legally get access to things <laughs> online, where for a long time, literally their attitude was, well, you should buy the CD <laughs> or the DVD uh, of things, which 
that did not go over well. <laughs> and they've kind of vaguely come to their senses on that one. And I'm just curious, you know, entrepreneurs start businesses and ideas and, and companies and projects for different reasons. What motivated you? What was, when we, th we think about motive, the reason for doing something, what was the reason for starting BitTorrent? You know, I, I talk to people and they'll be like trying to figure out what's their business idea and just brainstorming notions. And this is a very alien concept to me. This has never happened to me that I've had a lack of <laughs> what should I do now. Um, it's always like I have lots of ideas of things to do that are not motivated by me coming up with crazy ideas. They're motivated by me doing research in the case of my actual field, getting experience and finding the most basic solutions to the most important problems that are going on uh, in that field. And uh, yeah, in the case of BitTorrent, there, there's just this basic problem of, hey, look, there's lots of bandwidth out there. How do we use it? Like you have all these peers that have lots of upload capacity that they're not using. Um, how do we make it so that we more evenly distributed the upload burden across everyone who's accessing content rather than just whoever it is that's making initially available um, in the first place? And um, uh, the uh, and that's just this technical problem. It was just this obvious problem to work on. Uh, people didn't have good solutions for it or what passed uh, for being uh, solutions was, hey, we'll make it so that you can download from multiple peers at once. But what you really want to do is have peers start uploading before they're done downloading. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I had worked on so the last startup I worked at was called Modronation, which was a cryptocurrency company <laughs> in 2000. Um, it, it failed for a number of reasons, uh, mostly related to being way too early and trying to do way too much. It's kind of hard to have a successful cryptocurrency company when mining hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, if Ripple is a cryptocurrency, Modronation was a cryptocurrency. And... Uh, uh, but after the experience working on that, I thought not very much progress had been made, but I've done some interesting stuff doing forming distribution while I was there. And I thought it all needed to be rewritten from scratch because I had a much better idea about how to approach the whole problem at that point. Uh, so yeah, I, I made a tool that very specifically did this one specific thing of uh, swarming distribution following what is it's funny, back then, minimum viable product wasn't really a term of art in software, but I most definitely knew it from experience. It's like, get something working and shipped, <laughs> like just anything, <laughs> just get it out there, get, have, have a functioning product, because you could sit there dreaming of overgeneralizations of your stuff uh, forever. And it's really weird now that people talk about minimum viable product really pretentiously, like this is some deep insight that only a few select people <laughs> are aware of. <laughs> No, straight up. You know, what's, what's interesting is like, you know, the environment that produces the individual, like you program, like your father was a programmer, right? And like you, you were into programming, you were into math in New York, we talked about, and now you moved to San Francisco, you get super into it. Like, 
just out of curiosity, like how does one get immersed in an environment and like deep tech, deep coding? Tell me about who you were working with. Do you guys all meet up in like an underground like cellar and just like have computers? Like tell me about this. I I was on the coder punks mailing list, which was like a spinoff from the cypher punks mailing list. So the, the cypherpunks mailing's main claim to fame is that that's where Satoshi Nakamoto posted Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, so, uh, but this was years and years before that. Uh, so I knew about cryptography um, from that. And I went to like cypherpunks meetings that were in the Bay Area. And Mojo Nation was supposed to be like the all singing, all dancing cypherpunks project that did all the things that everyone was really excited about. Um, so, uh, but yeah, also just like I'd read, or, well, skimmed through, it's not really a book you read cover to cover, but I'd read uh, Applied Cryptography a number of years before that, which is, the book has an errata on what's half the length of the book, but um, the I, there's like a whole section in there on um, like uh, Kerberos style protocols. And a lot of them have just bugs in them, many of which like were deployed and in use for years before anybody noticed the bugs. Uh, but uh, like I noticed first time I ever looked through it, I could just kind of skim through and yeah, some significant fraction of all the protocols that had bugs in it, I could just eyeball it and tell you what the bug was <laughs> in the protocol. Um, uh, so I, I like I, I discussed this with other people afterwards because at the time, there were no real proofs in cryptography. It was all kind of this bullshit field where people, even professionals would design protocols and they just get broken just constantly. Um, nowadays, there are real proofs, which these days are usually means a reduction and you can talk about the efficiency of reduction and things like that. But at the time, people didn't know how to do that kind of stuff. So uh, I would talk to people about how I thought the whole concept of proving cryptographic protocols was bullshit because you could eyeball them more. Like the proof didn't tell you anything just because the proof said it was secure didn't mean it was actually secure and you're more likely to find problems eyeballing it than uh, like you were, it gave you more confidence eyeballing it than, than having a proof. And eventually a friend of mine explained to me, well, two things, first of all, um, you know, the proof is better than not having a proof. And there had been protocols where an attempt to prove it people had found a bug. Uh, and the other one was, uh, Bram, most people can't do that. <laughs> yeah, just look at the <laughs> protocols and say what was wrong. Um, but um, yeah, so that's kind of what I was around just uh, in general. Um, there is this whole uh, cypherpunk community uh, which is kind of, it's more known for its craziest elements who are really big on trying to get lots of media attention and often are kind of bad actors. But there's kind of the cypherpunk movement, which is sort of uh, generally speaking, political activism through writing code, like make things happen by making tools to enable certain social movements to take place. Um, and so out of that, uh, that, that's why we have an encrypted web <laughs> is because of that kind of stuff. It's not like big corporations of the world decided to do encryption. It was like people who were into such things uh, came up with protocols, sometimes at big, big-ish companies. I mean, SSL started at um, 
at Netscape back in the day. But generally speaking, it was individuals building these things and then it getting kind of cramped on the throats <laughs> of the powers that be <laughs> uh, uh, over their objections to actually get the, the you know, like HTTPS to be standard on web, which it is now. But that was a huge win and took a really long time and was much more painful than it should have been. So help me understand too. I mean, I feel like, you know, you yourself have an atypical career path. It, it's really just like, it's irreverent. You know, it's like, you don't go to college, you don't do your own things. Did you ever feel any pressure from anyone else to do anything else? Or was it just like, look, you got addicted to like solving problems oh, online? Oh yeah, and no, no, just I, was, like, I was made to feel miserable in high school. Like I was some failure as a human being for not bothering to get good grades. <laughs> like, and my problem was I thought that I was in school to learn. And when I had a class that was just a bullshit class, I, uh, that, you know, like there's some teachers who are just like bad teachers Straight who up. <laughs> will often compensate for their being bad teachers for giving an hour of homework every night just for their one class and then give test problems that are always verbatim from some homework assignment, and then everyone gets good grades in their classes. And so they optically appear to be good teachers, even though they're <laughs> gaming the system by uh, taking way too much of their students' time and yada yada. Anyway, so I, I just wouldn't do my homework. <laughs> um, yeah, also there were a lot of classes that were just really, really horrible back then. The, the, the um, uh, well, foreign language classes continued to be a disaster in the United States. And then there's, uh, and then uh, well, social studies was just horrifically bad. I assume it's improved a little bit by now. It was just like <laughs> truly unacceptable back then. I, was, I, I just had trouble taking school very seriously. It just seemed so absurd to claim that getting good grades on these tests was somehow important to life. <laughs> well, you know, it seems like for most artists, entrepreneurs, creators, it's just like the system doesn't really have a place for them and they break free. You know, like what, what has... What has this experience really taught you about like the overarching obey system? You, you know, I've asked people about like, like why did you finish college, right? Like that, that. And apparently to a lot of people, college is a good experience. They have fun there. They feel like it's a sheltered environment. And uh, yeah, and it's just kind of a good experience for them. And, and for me, it just felt like being in prison. <laughs> it was just miserable. So <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I just can't, I, I, I can't relate. I don't, I don't understand. Love it. I love it. What, what do you think, like, because obviously you've been immersed in technology, deep technology, coding. Like, what do you think technology has taught you about people the most? Um, about people, uh, you know, people and computers are very, very different things. Like if you're having a conversation with a computer and, and doing something with it, and then you 
stop it, stop working on it. And then come back six months later, you can pick up right where you left off. When you're talking to a person, you can't just like stop talking to them and six months later say, hey, I want to finish that conversation we were having six months ago. It doesn't, <laughs> they, get, they get very confused <laughs> when you try to do that. And, you know, humans are very modal. They have like the, the what they're doing right this second. There's in any given conversation you're having with someone, there will be um, the thread of conversation happening right now, like like the the thing that is on their mind at this moment, the what is on their stack of things to say and what they're thinking about. And then there's like, what mood do they have that lasts significantly longer than just what's on their stack at the moment. And then there's just their general approach to life and how they're coming at the whole conversation and things. And these are things you have to think about in conversation when talking to people. And it, it took me a long time to kind of work all that stuff out and be able to do a passable job of having a conversation with people. <laughs> I think you're doing a pretty good job right now. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned memory as being kind of one of those differentiators between a computer and a human. Break that down for us. Do you think that's like the, the main thing? Like if, if computers are continuing to get better and better and better and better with like, what is it? What is it, like Moore's law or something like that? Like, do you think that a that is the main differentiator, memory. Oh, uh, well, that, what I was talking about wasn't overall quality of memory. It, it, it's the, the way it works, it, not how good is it, but how, how does it, what are its semantics? Mm, okay. That uh, humans um, can't just take their current state and shove it away and then bring it back later exactly where it was and keep up, keep on that, which computers most definitely can. Um, the, the, the people talk about, well, there, there's lots of people who like freaking out about, um, uh, oh my God, the computers are going to take over the world. It's the, I really like the game Robotron 2084 and, you know, the, the attract screen in that one says that, that robots have taken, uh, have decided that humans are inferior and need to wipe them out. And so you need to just shoot all the robots. And that's the game. <laughs> it's this game from the 80s. Um, uh, there's nothing particularly new to this insight of, hey, uh, maybe we'll have technology that supersedes us humans someday. Um, the, and just from a you know physics standpoint, I, I see no physical limits as to why it is you couldn't have like build uh, computers, cyborgs, advanced humans, something much more superior to us that, that, that makes us look pretty foolish. I mean, like even very, very simple tools can improve our cognition massively. Like how many, how many words can you memorize and repeat back? How many more words can you memorize and repeat back if you have a pen and paper available to you, right? Like that's obviously very, very, we kind of fall flat. It's a really, really simple uh, cognitive um, uh, tests. Um, uh, but when people talk about this, they tend to not have much new in terms of insights into this. And there's this question of like time frame: how long is this going to take? And uh, it doesn't seem to be imminent. We have a number of like very, very impressive things coming out of AI in the last two decades or so. That the, the AI, field of AI has stopped being a joke and has started having some really, really impressive things in it. Um, but 
Um, it's going to be a while um, before we see really human level intelligence there. Um, uh, and in the meantime, we can work on things like improving us humans <laughs> to try and keep up. And we don't know what the form of everything is going to take. Uh, unfortunately, there are some people who are very prominent in the field of um, AI safety, who I think are kind of con artists who do just really low quality work. Well, Brent, just out of curiosity, you know, how, how do you think tech has like influenced you, your personality, your memory? Because like, here's an example, you know, like I got somebody that I know that every single time, you know, they drive somewhere, they need to punch in the coordinates, the GPS. They cannot look at science. They cannot remember where they went. So th therefore that, that access to great technology uh, is kind of hasn't, I guess they're just not using their memory as, as much as they really should be. Well, How does it influence you? Like what, what, why should they? I mean, what benefit is there to them to, to doing that? Like I, I always enter in the coordinates when I'm driving somewhere because even, even following a route, which I know very well, Right, like I don't. Uh, it, it's less cognitive load for me to think about it mm. if I have the coordinate. If I have the nav turned on, if I make a mistake or have to take a different turn or decide to take a detour, the nav automatically catches up. And at all times, the nav is telling me how long it's going to be uh, until I get there and what the estimated time of arrival is, which really dramatically decreases the overall stress load to me to doing this, right? Like, and it saves my time as well because I can show up exactly five minutes early to everything because the nav systems tend to have it really dialed in very well exactly when you're gonna arrive instead of trying to turn, show up 15 minutes early for everything just in case, because I don't know, who knows how long it's gonna take based on traffic currently for those things of uh, real-time traffic. You know, if you're taking like a bus or something, it's not like you pull out a map and follow where you're going. <laughs> it's like, whatever, I'm, I know I get on this bus, I go for this long and then I get off and then I get on this other bus and go for that one and get off. It's, 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 that's all that you know. If you, you, know, like, you don't need to know that other stuff, so you don't. I don't think there's any great loss there in not knowing those things. Just as an example though, you know, that that is a scenario where every single time someone is using technology when in reality, maybe it's not as important. Maybe the cognitive load, right? It's not really as important as it needs to be. How is technology, do you think, how does it influence you from a personality standpoint and maybe just in your daily routine? Well, people who are too young to remember it really, don't know what it was like before cell phones like back when uh people were just not available like literally the only way to reach someone was to call them at home and maybe they would pick up the phone and maybe they would be pissed off that you called them at a time when they didn't want to be <laughs> called and uh the um and and if you like if you were trying to meet up with someone and there was some miscommunication of any kind, even if they were just like a few minutes late and you were a few minutes early, you'd have this whole disaster of trying to figure out where they were and you had no way of reaching them, right? And if you took a wrong turn or missed a turn or a road was blocked when you're driving somewhere, you'd have to like pull over and try and pull out a map and figure out what was going on. And 
yeah, people spent huge chunks of their lives lost and in limbo trying to communicate with each other, where nowadays you just send a text and that would be the end of that. If you watch old movies, you could just sort of tally how many of the conflicts in old movies could have been resolved if you just sent a text to the other person. <laughs> and that would be the end of the movie right there. <laughs> the world was a very, very different place back then. And it was not as good of a place. <laughs> the constant miscommunications were not a good thing. Unless you're someone like me who doesn't want to be reached. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can. Yeah, can can well, I turn nice off thing, my phone? <laughs> the nice thing about texting is you can just not respond immediately and wait a while and, and respond later is the convention that it's okay to do that, where phones kind of demand you pick up the phone immediately. Um, it took a while for people to uh, to get over that one. Uh, the story is uh, Larry Page had this problem that mm. he was spending all his life in meetings and couldn't get any work done. And uh, and so he started saying no to all meetings, but then people would hit up his assistants uh, and, and get meeting time that way. So he fired all four of his assistants. <laughs> so just nobody could reach him anymore <laughs> so that he could get actual work done and started only having meetings that he asked for <laughs> after that. I love Bram. I love how you kind of brought like the history and just kind of opened the perspective of what life was like, you know, not too long ago. What areas to you, fields, industries, do you think are ripe for disruption? Huh. Well, it's always, it's always hard to say. Like years ago, I kind of saw the wave that we're on now, right? Like that was pretty obvious to me. I'm not sure what's upcoming exactly. Um, the functionality I've been asking for, for a long time, the, the thing I want, the thing that could change the world that is amazing and creepy and wonderful and horrible. <laughs> um, I want to be able to put on augmented reality glasses that have a camera in them and not an amazing display, just enough to give me information. So that whenever I'm talking to somebody, it does facial recognition on them and searches all my Facebook like friends and friends of friends and people I've spoken to in the past and tells me who this person is and when I've spoken to them before and who our friends in common are and their basic information. <laughs> so that I can actually recognize people I don't know when I'm at social gatherings and remember who I'm talking to when I'm talking to people. Isn't that just the most awkward thing when like your friend of a friend's mother runs into you and says, Kevin, how are you doing? I haven't seen you so long. And you're like, I, I, you know, hey, you know, <laughs> that is, yeah, that is a big need. That has someone who everyone has a mental hook about who they are. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not as well known as even like D-list celebrities, but I'm well known enough that people pretty reliably remember me when I speak to them for more than five minutes. And uh, and of course, I am terrible at remembering other people by names and faces and stuff. And so I'm constantly having those awkward interactions. So, so is this is this the the metaverse you're describing, or is this something completely? No, different? no, no, no. This is a very real world thing. This is a, a non complicated thing, really. It's mm -hmm. just uh, I, I am talking to somebody in the real world. There's someone. Maybe even they're just like on a Zoom meeting, right? Like, like there's someone whose face I am looking at, and uh, computers at this point are much better at facial recognition than I am. 
uh, even if in principle, if there's someone who I know very well, I can recognize pictures of that person better than the computers can. The computers know a lot more faces than I do. <laughs> That's for sure. Like it is much vaster swath of people who they can uh, recognize the faces of. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it would really be a benefit to me if every time I'm looking at a face of a person in any context like that, the, the facial wrecking that I could get a boost in terms of facial recognition from the computers. And so in terms of the business model for that, would you be a consumer paying for those spectacles? Um, well, I, I, I don't know. You, you never know. A weird thing with technology, it's kind of random whether it makes money or not. It, it tends to either make sure. way too little money or way too much money. It's just kind of randomly choose in terms of how it rolls out right because profit is not made off of improving the world profit is made off of inefficiency right <laughs> and sometimes when you build new tech it just improves efficiency and sometimes it improves efficiency just a little bit uh but there's plenty of inefficiency left that you're sitting right in the middle of and you make these huge profits <laughs> it's, it's all and, and so the the profitability of things is random and all over the place and it's kind of like who knows how it'll play out right now um this kind of ai tech tends to be behind walled gardens that you have major providers who are um providing it as a service. The closest thing to what I'm talking about is someone uh, who's Russian uh, scraped basically all of the contact because they don't, they don't give a shit about privacy in Russia. And someone I know who's Russian said she literally doesn't know a word in Russian for privacy. Um, <laughs> and, Does not exist. <laughs> yeah, when she spoke to her grandma having conversations about please don't just randomly walk into my room, they would do those conversations in English because she literally didn't know how to say it in Russian. Um, <laughs> and uh, the... Um, but uh, the contact, all the pictures were just public. So this Russian guy who's, you know, a hot shit in AI, he went and scraped it and he made the service where you could take pictures of people just like on the Metro in Moscow and it would tell you who they were. And it got it like 70% of the time would just pull up their V contact profile. And this is with no context whatsoever. That's not even going like specifically saying, well, I'm at a party. So you, most likely this person is like either one of my friends or one of my friends of friends or somehow related to me, which kind of uh, cuts down on the likely list of people quite a bit and makes it a lot easier to do this. So, but that of course was, um, I don't know if it's still up and running, but that of course was a service. It's not like someone open sourced uh, something that you could run and it just ran locally on your own thing and it was your own information it's not like you're training it against it's not like you say okay go and look at facebook for me and instagram and <laughs> twitter and all my social media feeds and pull down the information you can and train yourself on all those faces and, and be ready to recognize people for me um these are very um uh, proprietary things that are run as a service generally is how the business model for them has been running so far. And um, I, I think that's kind of a bad thing on sort of two levels. One of them is that you want people to have cheap access to this tech, right? And the other one is, I think it would actually be less creepy if everybody ran it for themselves. Because what's really creepy 
is when someone gets a big fat data set that's none of their goddamn business and trains the entire thing on it, right? They, they get access to all these pictures of people which aren't public pictures, <laughs> right? And, and you can train your model much, much better with many more faces. But then of course you ask GPT-3, hey, or you ask like Dolly here, make a picture that shows blah, blah, blah. And there's this funny thing that Dolly will sometimes make um, photorealistic pictures but it's very unclear whether they're pictures of real people. <laughs> like it, it makes these photorealistic pictures that you could swear they just pulled a photo off the internet and just showed it verbatim. But and maybe it did. Maybe that is literally just a picture it saw somewhere. But maybe it's this like amalgam of different things and it might or might not actually have a recognizable person <laughs> in that photo <laughs> that it's doing. So right now you're not allowed to show like you're not allowed to publish those photos if Dolly gives you a, a a photo that looks realistic. You're not allowed to publish it because that's against their terms of service because they're really irked about that. But um, if you yourself trained a facial recognition model really just against images that you yourself had access to, this would get rid of a lot of those concerns that, that you, you, you presumably only would have trained it against things that you had legitimate access to yourself and there wouldn't be quite such an Orwellian thing of Facebook and Google sticking their tendrils into everything and trading their models on things that is none of their business and where they're kind of violating in potentially violating people's privacy on mass. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think one of the things that comes to mind is like this quote I heard is like the rate of adoption moves at the rate of trust. And when you have organizations that are trying to you know, change the world, decentralize uh, or democratize uh, money, finance, you know, things like Bitcoin and whatnot, it, it tends to be much more trustable. Do you agree with that statement? And what have you seen in your experience um, that increases the rate of adoption? Well, for Bitcoin, the whole point is trust, right? That you have a, a secure distributed database, which kind of sounds like an oxymoron uh, on its face. Like, like it's pretty easy to make something that's secure and distributed. Uh, uh, well, not that easy, but it can be done like BitTorrent is uh, uh, um, uh, one of those things. You can have a distributed database, right? <laughs> that, that's, there's lots of those. And you can have um, uh, and you can have a secure database that's just completely proprietary, right? It's pretty easy to get two of those three things. Getting all three is very, very difficult. Uh, but when you have all three in principle, this is underutilized to this day, but uh, in principle, this is a very, very powerful thing. Uh, because on some level, the entirety of the banking system, that all the money that the banking system makes, not quite all, but a big chunk of the money that the banking system makes is there because they're a trusted third party in the middle of transactions. And uh, so you can do commerce with people who are very distantly related to you because there's this intermediary in the middle that's helping you not get fleeced <laughs> in these uh, interactions that you're doing. Now, the finance right. industry does a terrible job of doing this, <laughs> which is why <laughs> this insane tech stack uh, is so potentially valuable because it gets rid of having trusted third party, that there is this amorphous trusted third party consisting of sort of everyone, <laughs> uh, where it would take a vast, vast conspiracy to override the system. 
and uh, yes, and that, that's a, a very uh, that's an expensive but potentially very powerful thing. And, and where do you see like how much adoption do you see cryptocurrency? I guess undertake. Obviously, you know we've talked about generations growing up now with iPhones, technology at the tips of their fingers, um, everyone being more acclimated to things that at one point seemed ludicrous. Do you see uh, most of the world shifting onto a cryptocurrency, um, or do you see other government agencies adopting uh, a similar technology? Well, there's a question of what are blockchains really useful for, right? Like what what can really uh, be done with them. Um, and uh, I, I, before Ethereum came out, I, I was really tempted to snark publicly saying Ethereum is going to be the world's greatest platform for unlicensed securities. <laughs> Which, <laughs> oh, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that I didn't say that publicly, but it was definitely something I said in private quite a bit. Um, sure. uh, the... But there's a question of what can you do that's of real value using cryptocurrencies. And actually, the finance industry is big enough and does enough stuff that even something that's a pretty small application in finance can bring uh, tremendous value. But uh, at Chia, we're actually trying to answer this question. So the thing I get really excited about is, hey, we can make better custody arrangements that like when you are doing... Uh, transactions using your bank, they have like withdrawal rate limits and things like that. Uh, they have a bunch of um, security features in this thing for you. Uh, now they do it in a way that has no uh, that has no end user control and very, very little transparency to the whole thing, <laughs> uh, which leads to a lot of confusion. Um, Uh, but, it, and today using Bitcoin kind of feel like carrying around suitcases full of hundred dollar bills, but cryptocurrencies could in principle, uh, actually provide the kind of services banks are doing, or most of them, like there are things where you go back to a slightly trusted party and prove who you are. And that can be the bit, but in terms of the business logic behind the whole thing, but the process flow behind it, uh, cryptocurrency should be able to implement whatever you want and build these kinds of things with um, complete transparency and end user control. Uh, so we're working on building that, although um, unfortunately people won't get excited about that. <laughs> um, but I get excited about it. Um, I get excited. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, in terms of uh, other things, um, there's, we have these two products, which are Chia asset tokens, CATS, which are our equivalent of ERC-20 tokens. It's just a way of doing tokenization on chain. And a data layer, which is a way of reporting information on chain. You report a Merkle root uh, so that there's a database that's held off chain where a summary of it is published to the chain uh, in a way which allows people to transact uh, based off of what the current state of that thing is. Um, uh, so that actually can provide tremendous value very quickly because you can do things like uh, pay for title for something. Like if if uh, you want to like sell me a car or something like that, I mm, can okay. uh, post, I, I could like, uh, um, I, I could post 
funds to the chain that says here these funds are collectible by you if you update the title of the car in this thing uh, to say that I own it and then you go and tell them to update it and they uh, it gets updated on chain and then you can go ahead and collect the funds right um, so those and that is a very simple application but it makes it so that you don't have to pay for escrow <laughs> like the cost of escrow just plummeted <laughs> just from that one very simple application that you did um so that's a really good use of uh cryptocurrencies and there's also uh tokenization with uh cats um and in particular we're pretty focused on making that happen with um carbon markets so carbon markets you both can have entries in the carbon markets be reported in data layer but you can also tokenize the carbon credits themselves so that they're very liquidly traded on chain. And one of the big features of CATS is you have what we call uh, offer files. You can make it so that you make an offer to trade a certain amount of a CAT for a certain amount of Chia or USDC or whatever with somebody else and send that along. And then whoever you send it to can aggregate that together with taking a balancing side of this thing. You made an offer that says, well, I'm printing a certain amount of this CAT and I'm um, burning a certain amount of chia. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm trading them basically. And this is not a valid transaction because you can't just print chia. But, uh, um, and then someone else can take this offer file and do a balancing side of this. They, they can print the amount that you burned and burn the amount that you print in the same denominations and aggregate these together. And this is now a valid transaction that will go through on chain without any interaction back with the first person whatsoever. In fact, it's even possible for someone to aggregate a whole bunch of these and market make uh, off of them. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I think this is a very compelling solution. Uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people and places who have carbon credits do want to get very liquid markets in them and don't know how, and are very leery of cryptocurrencies generally because of the ludicrous amounts of power consumption <laughs> of cryptocurrencies and they want nothing to do with that and she uh, you know we found a solution to this problem we made it so that instead of proof of work it's proof of space and time so it's not burning huge amounts of electricity uh as it's just as it's doing stuff and you're not causing it to burn more electricity when you make uh transactions happen through it got it okay i'm there and, and you know carbon markets right now i think it's one of the fastest growing asset classes i think there's a nine trillion dollar market opportunity if the countries come together to you know take on the paris climate accord right that they, yeah. they said they'd agree well, to they, have, doing. They, they just don't they, they have they just don't know how to make the markets happen so we're trying to help them <laughs> right exactly okay so from from the context of just supply and demand can you break it down for the layman how you connect a supplier and a um a consumer oh um so there are uh there are people who have carbon credits um they either uh, they're either like a country that gets carbon credits just because they have trees in their country, or <laughs> they are a, uh, a company that's actually actively sucking carbon dioxide out of the air, uh, doing sequestration, or, um, or maybe they were a person who could have done something horrible for the environment, but decided not to, and hence they're getting credit for it. That's obviously the sketchiest type of... <laughs> 
sure. of carbon credit that you could get because man people are good at making up stories about how they would do something hard um, <laughs> uh, that's those are that is by far the cheapest type of carbon credit and um yeah the uh so on the other side there are times and places where people are required to get carbon credits to offset what they're doing they are doing something bad they are they are emitting carbon dioxide into the air as part of whatever manufacturing or what have you that is that they're doing um and they need to acquire uh, offsets for this either because they voluntarily want to do it for good credit or because they are legally required to but things that people are legally required to get tend to be a lot more expensive <laughs> than things that are completely voluntary um the um uh, yeah, so, so you want to have a market that pairs these, where you have uh, the original issuers of these things who get the carbon credit somehow, and an audit trail that shows that these are real carbon credits that someone uh, retired when they get access to them and devote them to their own as a dispensation for their own activities. <laughs> I'm there. I'm there. So therefore, you know, someone cannot uh, fabricate two carbon credits. There can, there can be... There can only be one credit, right? So if I was uh, yeah, a producer, yeah. well, they, yeah, on just some like, level, just like the car application. Yeah, there's a little bit of trust going on here that you're uh, and there can be a bunch of you know off-chain auditing of these things, but you have an original issuer who gets a certain amount of carbon credits, right? And and you can audit that the total amount that they're claiming is the total amount that they're supposed to, um, and then you have people who are buying these things. And you want to audit that, first off, you want to somehow audit that people aren't just running their smokestacks without reporting it back, which of course can happen. So there needs to be kind of off-chain auditing, stopping that kind of bad behavior. But then when people do claim these things, there needs to be some kind of audit trail to show that they really did acquire these things and, and put them to their own use. And for businesses that want to be a part of this, uh, do you find the need being more from like a risk lens? Hey, I need to have a mixture, I have a clear, concise, trustworthy audit of my carbon credits that I've just acquired. What are you finding the need for the, the corporations that, like you said, manufacturers burning fossil fuels? Well, you want, you, you want, Uh, well, you want something that's trustworthy and auditable and reliable and, the, and liquid. It, it needs to be very liquid. So, so that's like one of the biggest uh, parts of the whole thing that you need to somehow take a whole bunch of different uh, carbon credits from a whole bunch of different countries, uh, many of which are literally kept on spreadsheets right now. <laughs> And, and somehow make all these interoperate with each other in a system which all these different countries can agree to have happen. And they're very concerned that whoever it is that's coordinating the whole thing isn't just like pocketing a, a massive fee on every single transaction and running it at a, mass, at a massive profit. Because the point of this whole exercise is not to enrich finance industry types, it's to <laughs> make carbon markets real. Like what you really want to have happen is have a highly liquid market so that entrepreneurs can start businesses doing carbon sequestration and have an actual business model for that, right? <laughs> so you enable this. And I think one of the consistent themes that I've been hearing throughout this whole conversation, Bram, is 
you just attack inefficiencies, you know, and, <laughs> and at the end of the day, you know, you had mentioned, you know, I'm trying to change the world. What, what, what type of world do you want to leave? What is the change you want to see in the world? What is the change I want to see in the world? Um, you know, I, 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 uh, there's all the basic feel good things about people. You want people to be allowed to live their lives without other people getting up in their business to do so in a way that doesn't have lots of completely unnecessary externally induced stress on them where they do this in good health. <laughs> um, uh, all those kinds of things. And obviously like keeping the earth's environment in a good condition is <laughs> a big part of this, but also things in healthcare. I think having like a strong social welfare system is a really good thing. Uh, getting the existing technology that we have already here on planet earth to be more widespread and across the entire planet's population instead of tightly focused in a few of the more advanced countries, uh, which has been happening. This is a process that's happening, but definitely a long more ways to go in terms of making that happen. Um, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of, you know, the, the big intractable problems of the human race of how do you make it so that you have stable governments that believe in human rights. <laughs> How do you keep that going? How do you get people to stop being so addicted to drugs? How do you make them not be so depressed and anxious? These are like big, difficult problems that are the never-ending things. And I don't have good solutions to this. I, I have, I mean, I have some thoughts in terms of the solutions that other people have come up with that I think are good solutions. Well, partial solutions, but are things that help <laughs> with those that are being underutilized. Um, but uh, but I can help with you know some of these more basic technical things. I can make databases work better. I can move data from point A to point B. I can help people communicate more. You know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, I'd say you know to bring this full circle about you know kind of entrepreneurs careers breaking through the system. You know that's really I feel like what your life's like mantra is. You're just like and I'm obviously just putting words into your mantra, so feel free to deny this yeah, mantra. But well, it, you're changing you're changing the inefficiencies in these systems. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah. So so a lot of what I do I do out of righteous rage. There's something that just pisses me off. There's something that's just done wrong and bad and is ridiculous and i need to fix it <laughs> can't help it man it's a calling it's a good calling to have and i think yeah. you should tap into that even more and uh, i just want to bring this home you know what is that calling do you think what's bram cohen's calling i don't know it, it, it seems weird to me like about like me having trouble in school People I've known have like had discussions, like coworkers of mine have discussed, like if Bram, if, like if if we were not my current company, but before, if we were acquired by like Cisco, how long would Bram last? Like how long? <laughs> so Bram just rage quit because I just couldn't deal with 
what was going on. And people basically were arguing about what, not whether I would rage quit, but what the time scale would be. Is this like weeks or days or hours before, <laughs> I, before I just blew my stack and did something so impolitic that I was no longer at the company anymore. And I have definitely done things which, you know, where which caused other people to be almost literally hiding under tables because I just said something that you just do not say. Um, and I think more people should have righteous rage that like when you have so many people work in workplaces that are miserable because they're inefficient and horrible. And the sad thing is everybody knows that the entire workplace is inefficient and horrible. And most of the people know what the problems are and what the solutions should be. And if even a tiny fraction of the people who were there simply spoke up <laughs> and just made a big stink about the obvious problems, um, a lot of these things would get fixed. But, um, uh, but people don't because it's you know, a potentially career limiting move, even though, you know, usually if you bring your receipts and point out just the obvious, you can make very justifiable statements about how things are not being done right <laughs> that you can back up that it's very hard for people to do anything bad to you uh, for saying this, but people don't want to do it. And I think more people should have righteous rage where they just blow their stack and call shenanigans on something just because it's wrong, even if it's against their personal interest to do so. And I have this to a, you know, possibly pathological degree, <laughs> but I think it would be better if more people were more like me on this. Dimension. That's interesting. Do you believe in rights and wrongs and what qualifies a right and a wrong? Um, there's this rule of thumb about companies, that every time a company doubles in size, everyone who works there gets 15% less efficient, which sounds like, okay, sure, that makes sense, right? The thing is that it compounds and it never stops happening. So <laughs> if you go <laughs> from like a 10-person company to a 10,000-person company, everyone in that 10,000-person company is one-fifth as productive <laughs> as they would be if they were in a 10-person company. And so when it feels like you have entire departments full of people doing nothing, it's it probably just literally true. <laughs> it probably really is uh, that way. And people know this. They feel this. They can, they can see this. Um, nobody has any idea how to fix it. Like people who are, I, I have a very low opinion of the field of management in general, but there are people in it who are serious, who try to study things and they have some thoughts about how to manage large organizations because it does become extremely problematic. And people do sometimes have this problem that you have something that naturally should be a large organization and now you have to somehow manage it. And basically they all seem to say is, yeah, no one can control a 10,000 person company. We have no idea. There has never been a well-run 10,000 person company in the history of humanity. We have no idea how one goes about trying to make that happen. We have no proof point of it being done well. Let alone a country. Yeah. Um, well, it, it, when you have a country, we know that having democratic elections helps. It, it puts some kind of a, a break on things. That, that when you have a, a country where the people running it earnestly want to run it well, 
and are selected for earnestly wanting to run it well, then it is run better. When you have uh, people, even elected officials, who make it their shtick saying that government is inherently evil and inefficient and bad, if you put these people in charge of government, surprise, surprise, their government tends to be evil and inefficient and bad. <laughs> That's a really interesting concept. Do you know of any businesses that vote to elect people to office or mm -hmm. to be in management of others? Versus yeah, like the shareholders, of course. Yeah, well, every... One of the things that companies is every company really only kind of has like one immune system, which is the board, right? And there's always like the same number of people on the board, right? <laughs> no matter how big the company is. And the board can only do so much, right? It can do basic auditing of things. Um, and uh, as the company grows in size, just the distance between the board and all the flies on shit <laughs> trying to just parasitize the company gets so big that you can't really uh, stop it anymore. And, and the capitalist solution to this is like the crudest thing it could possibly be, which is like, well, some companies will just uh, will just become so dysfunctional that we'll do something about it. But the way we decide that a company is so dysfunctional that we'll do a, something about it is that it becomes unprofitable and it goes under. <laughs> and the nice thing about a company being unprofitable and going under for that reason is nobody is on the hook for being the bad guy who told all the people in the company that they sucked. <laughs> And their company sucked. And that's why it's being put out of business. It's this, it's this hand of market, you know, like um, so, some accountant somewhere is all responsible for this whole big thing. Um, but um, but, but it, it kind of makes it so the decision can be made collectively by the entire rest of society with no one in the company acquiescing to this whatsoever and no one person outside of the company being the one who was responsible for giving the negative feedback because that's how bad people are at taking and responding to negative feedback is <laughs> we've designed the whole of our society around coping with the fact that no one will ever take any negative feedback and behave on it appropriately. Not to say that no one ever uh, takes negative feedback right or that there aren't good companies that uh, go under or bad companies that succeed. It's just that these are pervasive enough trends that this is how society is structured. <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, this all boils down to just one person, you know, in leadership. It's really what this is about sometimes. As you continue to grow, you have to make decisions that may not be best for maximizing shareholder value and may be best for the company and making sure that everyone stays productive. To you, Bram Cohen, what is your definition yeah. of a real leader? Of a real leader. Oh, well, there's, there are misperceptions. The real leader is a very loaded term, right? Because like people, when I was younger, people would say that I wasn't a real CEO, which I didn't know what that meant. What does that term mean? And I, I've been burned <laughs> by a lot of things. I have to say, People have this, there's two parts of being a leader. One of them is 
having the power and the other is having the responsibility. And the way you get the power usually is by being someone who's good at this political game of getting the power of, and, and which often has to do with appealing to both uh, social biases and deep in the primate brain <laughs> biases of who they think the alpha male is, right? Um, and people have become so accustomed to this image of the douchey, well-dressed, tall CEO <laughs> who's got great charisma, right? Um, that they think that this is the kind of person you want to be giving the responsibility to. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's specifically who you don't want to be giving the, the responsibility to. That, that's someone who's like, like people who are actually good at running organizations are these nerds who geek out on running the organization. And, uh, and they are typically not people who are good at elbowing their way up in a political organization. And, and it's really insane to me that people have lost sight of this fact that this image that they have of, of, of a leader, of the person in charge, is not of based on who should be in charge. It's based on who is in charge. <laughs> well, well that, expand on that a little bit more. Uh, for for your own definition, you talked about having power. You talked about having responsibility. But really, what I took out is sometimes, you know, leadership isn't just that one person. It could be decentralized. It could be, it could be the people within the company. Oh well, there's well by definition, as a leader, you're not doing everything yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a leader. Otherwise, you'd just be someone doing stuff. <laughs> you would be a solo contributor. You'd be a self-employed, right? Um, the, um, uh, you, there's a lot of delegation that goes on. And there's a lot of, um, in, when you look at companies, so obviously I know tech companies much more than other things. So if you look at companies that they have a CEO and, and the, there's different roles within a company that, that, aren't always split the same way across all companies. It varies massively. Um, but the, the CEO's core responsibilities are um, uh, dealing with like investor relations and managing the other top executives and having some kind of vision for the company. And then they can outsource different parts of this to varying degrees. And they do, depending on the um, organization. Um, but usually the, the CEO's specialty should be the thing that is most essential to the company, right? So um, uh, like at Amazon, the person in charge is very much in charge of thinking about how they work operationally, because that's a company very much like, you know, Walmart, that's all about operational uh, things. Uh, uh, my company, I am in charge of product and architecture <laughs> for the whole thing. Um, there are other, you know, non-tech companies, I think the, the person in charge is often more 
of a kind of GNA role. They, they, it often will make more sense for it to be kind of like a finance person who's in charge of the whole thing or something like that. The thing that's kind of goofy is traditionally you give that role to the salesperson <laughs> who's like, <laughs> I mean, the, the, there are companies which are mostly about sales. They tend to not be good companies. <laughs> if you're mostly about sales, you're probably, your product probably isn't very good. Um, but uh, the reason why you hire the salesperson is you, when everyone has to make a pitch for why they should be the person in charge, the salesperson does the best job of making that pitch because that's their job. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, I think also, you know, one of the things I'm taking away from this is just knowing your own strengths and delegating. Like that's a, it's a huge quality of relationship. So, uh, Bram, just want to thank you for coming on the show today and taking your time all hour and one, you know, 15 minutes of this conversation. They really enjoyed it. it. Flew by super fast. For Bram Cohen, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, have power and delegate responsibility and always folks keep it real. Thank you, Bram. Thank you.